0: Schumpeter would have loved Bitcoin. He would have seen in Bitcoin a living representation of his theory of capitalism, so often quoted but rarely understood. Creative destruction is the process by which capitalism continually rejuvenates itself. It is what drives markets forwards, constantly being refreshed with new ideas that destroy extant structures and erect better ones in their stead the best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, where you will get your Ph.D. in all things Bitcoin. And today, I am well. I'm always, guys, one, but I'm also, to, I'm also, guys, one today. But today we are talking about the evolution of the economy and the cycles of creative destruction and how they might map out onto the cycles within the Bitcoin system itself. We have a great piece written, uh, written. written uh, written by Pratik Gora and uh, with the help and or co-authoring from Andy Edstrom. Um, uh, He is the author of the book Why Buy Bitcoin? It's a really great one if you haven't checked it out. Um, Both, uh, I'm pretty sure both are previous authors on the show. Um, You can check those out at bitcoinaudible.com if you want to check their previous works. Also, I am already partway through Alex Gladstein's new piece that dropped yesterday, so keep an ear out for that one. Hopefully going to get it finished, maybe tonight if I'm lucky, so there may be another update to the feed really soon. It is a great piece that you don't want to miss, so subscribe. But let's get into today's read. Before we do, let's thank our lovely sponsors who keep me fed and caffeinated. The Fold Card and the Fold App. You get 5,000 sats free for signing up through guyswan.com fold and this is literally a tool you get a, it's a debit card you get sats back on everything that you buy and even more sats back if you get gift cards for the services you already use like Amazon Starbucks Uber like these sorts of things this is the way to stack passively that is a perfect thing to align with your Swan Bitcoin auto savings plan so add these two things together and it's a recipe for super saiyan sat stacking That is always going up. Your stack is always increasing no matter what you do. And you know how you keep that stack safe? You get a BitBox O2 hardware wallet. You need a sound, open source, secure hardware wallet that is easy and quick to set up. And the BitBox is the digital vault for your digital keys. Discount code GUY gets you 5% off. Don't forget it. And with that, let's go ahead and get into today's read. And it's titled The Schumpeterian Bitcoin Cycle by Pratik Gora The Road Ahead with Andy Edstrom Bitcoin embodies Schumpeterian creative destruction. Bitcoin also behaves like a physical natural resource with unique differences that make it a driving force for affecting fundamental change much like gold, oil, or electricity has done. Bitcoin goes through periodic cycles of varying lengths that inspire a creative rejuvenation of its ecosystem with new ideas and innovations at various timescales and magnitudes. We apply the idea of a Schumpeterian business cycle to Bitcoin and construct a Schumpeterian Bitcoin cycle based on three continental waves. A multi-decadal bitcoin conjurative cycle, a bitcoin Hoglar cycle that is shorter than a decade, and a Bitcoin-Kitchen cycle that corresponds with the halvings. Associated with these sub-cycles are three ratios that capture their logic, stock-to-flow, or S2F, installed capacity-to-capital investment, or IC2CI, and inventories-to-sale, or I2S. 1. Creative Destruction Schumpeter would have loved Bitcoin. He would have seen in Bitcoin a living representation of his theory of capitalism, so often quoted but rarely understood. Creative destruction is the process by which capitalism continually rejuvenates itself. It is what drives markets forwards, constantly being refreshed with new ideas that destroy extant structures and erect better ones in their stead. There are countless elements in Bitcoin that structurally instill the process of Schumpeterian creative destruction in its ecosystem, making it an excellent model for the cycles of capitalistic rejuvenation that formed the basis of Schumpeter's theory of economic growth. For instance, consider the process of the having of block rewards. Every 210,000 blocks, Bitcoin forces a creative destruction of itself. Urging its participants to either reimagine their competitive edge, seek hidden efficiencies and eradicate waste, or risk being left by the wayside. Bitcoin's worth is rooted in the intrinsic value of capitalism, liberated one cycle of creative destruction at a time. If there is creative destruction inherent in Bitcoin, then where are all those new products that eventuate when extant markets are destroyed by new ideas? Wasn't that Schumpeter's point, after all? The answer is simple. Bitcoin evolves into a new product, a new version of itself, with each cycle of creative destruction. Since we are so used to thinking of a Bitcoin as immutable, we tend to look past this essential characteristic feature it possesses to reinvent itself. Bitcoin started off as electronic cash native to the Internet, but has since become many things besides. It has become the most sound platform for the definitive settlement of contracts. It has become a savings account for individuals and corporations. It has become a useful tool for international remittances. It has inspired an ecosystem of financial instruments, cryptocurrencies, and much else. None of these were imagined as core features for Bitcoin in 2008, yet with each cycle of creative destruction, Bitcoin was reimagined. 2. A Natural Resource with a Difference Bitcoin can usefully be examined as just another exhaustible natural resource that has held the power to alter the course of human civilization, such as gold or even more aptly, crude oil. Crude oil underwent several cycles of creative destruction since its discovery in antiquity. In its long history, crude oil has at various times been used predominantly for heating and cooking, asphalt paving, lighting, lubricating and powering machines, transportation, plastics, aviation, and so on. Of course, there are key differences between Bitcoin and natural resources, but the similarities are just as interesting. Bitcoin can be imagined as a physical field of exploration where prospectors dig for coins, The field has the following characteristics. First, the total yield from the field is fixed at 21 million coins, and no matter how hard the prospectors may dig, the field simply won't yield any more coins. All prospectors know this to be true in advance, which puts a very definite terminal point in time to their activities. Second, prospectors know with certainty ...that it will get increasingly harder to find more coins as they dig. That's because they also know that this field cannot be gated... ...and prospecting cannot be regulated. So prospecting for coins will take the form of a gold rush. Extraction of the in-situ unmined coins will be an extremely competitive activity. Well, it will almost certainly keep getting harder... The only way in which it will ever get easier for any given prospector is if, for some reason, his rivals decide to reduce their efforts. If that happens, then for a short time, the prospector gets just a bit more of the field to himself to mine for coins using his current digging equipment. Before long, though, his rivals observe his obvious fortune and come rushing back in. This squeezes him back to a smaller area on the field. Now he simply must invest in better equipment if he wishes to out-compete his rivals. Third, the fiercer the competition, the less space each prospector will have in the field. To extract coins, he will need to try even harder than before. It gets exponentially harder for him to dig deeper, and he has to bring in more and more sophisticated digging equipment to extract coins. He started off with a spoon, upgraded to a spade, then an excavator, then a vertical drill, and so forth. We paint this picture merely to underscore the point that Bitcoin is a rare and non-perishable natural resource, like platinum, gold, iridium, or even rhodium. It is a singular kind of natural resource, even among that illustrious group, but it is one all the same. And yet... Two things about Bitcoin make it a rather exceptional natural resource. First, since available market supply is known to be fixed and the extraction rate asymptotically approaches zero, future demand is met increasingly with inventories and decreasingly through production until roughly 2140, after which all demand must be sufficed by a globally fixed inventory alone. Thus, hoarding Bitcoin in inventories is rational even before all its possible uses have been discovered. Imagine if the costs of storing an inventory were similar for gold and oil to what they are for Bitcoin. Now consider how we would have behaved if it were known with 100% certainty that in the year 1850 BC, gold, or for that matter in the year 1850 AD, crude oil, had universally fixed and fully extractable supplies, and that almost 90% would be extracted from all their in-situ locations within just 15 years of their discovery. Hoarding would have been so frenetic and all-consuming that history books the world over would have to be rewritten. Second, being digital, Bitcoin is divisible and additive at virtually any scale and at a fraction of the cost of any physical natural resource. This makes Bitcoin more, quote, malleable than any other natural resource which permits its use to span markets from micro to macro. The immutable finality of its settlement layer permits Bitcoin to function as a central macro infrastructure. The concomitant mutability that its higher layers enable permits it to function in specialized markets where contractual elasticity is required. With this premise of Bitcoin as a non-perishable natural resource, we now wish to argue that Bitcoin's market price is governed by a set of nested cycles that have been well known to natural resource economists since at least the 1920s and were used by Schumpeter in his theory of business cycles. Their use fell out of favor in mainstream economics because of reasons that do not apply particularly well to Bitcoin. And consequently, there is much that we can learn by using this framework to examine the Bitcoin cycle. Part 3. The Three Sub-Cycles Schumpeter identified three cycles of different links as basis for his theory of business cycles. Each cycle had distinct drivers and horizons, but they tended to have confluent peaks and troughs as they formed an overarching narrative for capitalistic growth. Together, the three cycles became the components of an overarching Schumpeterian cycle. The sub-cycle with the shortest length in his overall three-part cycle was the kitchen cycle, which he estimated at about 40 months, Though empirically it has been measured to be as long as 60 months. The Hooglar cycle was much longer, with a period of roughly 10 years, and between 7 and 11 years in the literature. The longest was the Kondratiev cycle, or K wave, with a length of approximately 50 years. What broadly drives a Schumpeterian cycle together is entrepreneurial activities and innovations interacting with one another in a grand cycle. As a suite of innovations are exploited by entrepreneurs, an economy improves from a state of depression towards a state of improvement. Once the extant technology's benefits have been leveraged at the peak of prosperity, the state of the economy turns towards recession and finally back into a state of depression. Let's take a closer look at each of these cycles and explore their connection to Bitcoin. A. The Bitcoin Kitchen Cycle The kitchen cycle stems from firms with fixed capital constraints that must contend with lags in information on market conditions. During the upward swing in the business cycle, improvement, firms ramp up production and enjoy supernormal profits as the market swings into prosperity. Firms bring their fixed capital use to full employment levels and eventually overwhelm the market with excess supply. This depresses prices, tipping the market over into a state of recession. Firms respond by building up their inventories. Production gets scaled back, and once the market is back into equilibrium, the cycle is complete. The process that drives a kitchen cycle has been noticed in the context of agricultural commodities, In fact, it is often called the hog cycle and led to the development of the cobweb model to explain oscillating prices. One of us has discussed this model in the context of Bitcoin before. It is also observed in markets for hard commodities, including metals. You might note the Achilles heel in the argument if you are even casually abreast of neoclassical economics. Besides the obvious criticism of undue determinism in the length of the cycle, it minimizes the role of adaptive expectations. Firms ought to learn from the markets more effectively and not get suckered into an endless cycle of chasing demand with overproduction. Determinism is, however, built directly into Bitcoin. An average time target for blocks at 10 minutes per block over 2016 blocks is a predetermined environment variable for Bitcoin, and while miners have thus far outstripped this rate marginally, the date for the next halving can be approximated. While network difficulty and hash rates vary over the course of the cycle, and the latter is affected by market conditions on costs of production and prices, duration of the halving cycle length is known. A Bitcoin kitchen cycle roughly equal to the halving cycle, 44 to 48 months, makes sense. The supply side, miners and to a degree even exchanges and hodlers, is incentivized to supply more to the market as prices rise by increasing their hash rates and or drawing down their inventories. When prices fall, miners scale back their hash rates and add to their inventories if they can or, if they cannot cover their fixed costs, they scale back or even exit thus the ratio inventory to sales is crucial to a bitcoin kitchen cycle an inventory is a stock of a given product that the producer has access to and sales are the flows out of inventories as selling pressure diminishes and inventories are increased an increase in the inventory to sales ratio marks the end of the recession phase and the beginning of the improvement phase for the following Bitcoin Kitchen Cycle. The ratio falls as the cycle turns from the height of the phase of prosperity and towards the depression phase. b. The Bitcoin-Hugler Cycle The role of innovation and investment is far more crucial in the longer duration of the Hugler Cycle where demand overwhelms the available supply during the upward phases of the business cycle so thoroughly that merely the full employment of existing physical capital is insufficient. The pace of research and innovation increases to effect a change in the nature of new investments made by firms. Entrepreneurial effort in identifying key innovations and deploying them for such new investments takes a longer time than is permitted by the kitchen cycle. Similarly, during the downward phases of the business cycle, declining demand affects production with a greater lag than in the kitchen cycle because new investments, once made, cannot be undone within a shorter time frame. A period somewhat shorter than two halvings, roughly 7 to 8 years, seems the most natural length for a bitcoin Hoogler cycle. The first Hoogler cycle began in 2009 and completed at the end of 2015 taking Bitcoin mining through an entire innovation and reinvestment phase, from CPUs to the first broadly available ASICs. Thus, we are now approaching the end of the second Hoogler cycle, perhaps sometime in 2024. And the story of this cycle, we can only hypothesize, will likely be a locational reinvestment of plants in search of energy cost efficiencies from a range of sustainable energy alternatives. Bitcoin friendly energy companies are already building Bitcoin mining facilities next to underutilized wind energy fields producing more energy than can otherwise be consumed, as well as stranded natural gas wells that would otherwise be flared or vented. In the former case, the offtake of excess energy allows otherwise unviable wind installations to remain competitive. In the latter, greenhouse gas production from flaring and venting is reduced by Bitcoin mining. The critical ratio of interest for a bitcoin Hoogler cycle is that of installed capacity to capital investment, since it is at the peak of the cycle that the IC2CI ratio is at its highest and begins declining only as installed capacity of a specific type is overwhelmed by demand and makes the need for newer forms of capital investment more limpid. Hence, the impetus for the next bitcoin Hoogler cycle comes from new capacity coming online through investments in newer technologies, production methods, and materials. C. The bitcoin Condratif Cycle The Condratif Cycle, or K-Wave, is the cycle of the longest duration, at between 40 and 60 years. The cycle emanates from a fundamental and transformative change in technology that brings about broad socioeconomic consequences far beyond those captured by cycles of shorter links. The more recent K-waves identified in the literature include the age of steel and heavy engineering in 1875, the age of oil, electricity, the automobile and mass production around 1908, and the age of information and telecommunications, 1971. Schumpeter, much in accordance with Contradief's own vision, saw the impetus for progression between K-waves to be the clustering of several key supporting innovations. The innovative entrepreneurial insight for a transformation to begin the stage of prosperity simply could not arise unless all of the requisite ideas had first been discovered. In the context of Bitcoin, the K-waves of concern pertain to the source of hardness in money. Loosely, the waves appear to be the age of gold specie money, 1873 to 1914, the age of the gold standard from 1925 to 1973, the age of fiat money from 1973 to 2009, and finally the age of Bitcoin, 2009 onwards. If the K wave length of roughly 40 years is prescriptive, it suggests to us that there are likely going to be interesting transformations in store for Bitcoin well before the final Bitcoin is mined. At the end of the first Bitcoin K wave, roughly in the year 2047, 10 halving cycles will have been completed, and 99.90234386% of all Bitcoins will have been mined, leaving just shy of 20,508 bitcoins left to be mined. The economic value of block space will naturally rise exponentially throughout this wave, and perhaps this metric will even prove pivotal in effecting the end of the first wave. The second Bitcoin K wave will rely on a suite of associated technologies that are either extremely nascent at this stage or even yet unimagined, in order to bring about the next transformation, Mark Andreessen's observation, made around the time of the beginning of the first Bitcoin K wave, that software is eating the world, is relevant to Bitcoin during this cycle since Bitcoin is eating monetary systems. In the second Bitcoin K wave, however, a much larger gamut of technologies will permit us to say that quote, Bitcoin is eating digital economies in mass. The most useful ratio for the Bitcoin-Kandratif cycle would seem to be the stock-to-flow ratio that Seyfedina Amous discussed in his book and is now well-known to Bitcoin observers thanks to Plan B's empirical work. However, in terms of annual production and net stock, of course, the S2F ratio increases as a step function asymptotically as we approach the year 2140. There can be no variations to accommodate cyclicality we concede that it may well be that Bitcoin will break all expectations, as it so frequently does, and give us an age of Bitcoin that has a far longer K-wave length. However, if indeed past proves precedent, and between now and when the final coin is fully minted, Bitcoin experiences at least three full contratief cycles of roughly 40 years in length each, we can still use a modified version of the stock-to-flow ratio to examine the phases of each cycle. To avoid confusion, we might call it S2F asterisk. Within each cycle, the S2F asterisk ratio can fall below the algorithmic equilibrium expectation if we define the flow as Bitcoin's market volatility in addition to its production rate per unit of time alone. A possible measure for this velocity could simply be Bitcoin days destroyed. Thus, the ratio for the Bitcoin K wave becomes stock to flow asterisk equals the extracted Bitcoins held in inventory divided by the annual production plus the Bitcoin days destroyed. The asterisk stock to flow becomes identical to the traditional stock to flow when the majority of Bitcoin inventories are dormant which is our expectation as we move from one Bitcoin K-wave to the next. In the longer run, settlement on the base layer ought to become rarer events and indicate exceptionally significant outcomes. After all, once the land grab is behind you and the citadels have been built upon it, the emphasis shifts to the bustling activity within those structures. In Figure 1, we summarize this section and present the three sub-cycles of the overall Schumpeterian Bitcoin cycle, their associated metrics, and their approximate links. Part 4 And finally, a look ahead. Figure 2 below illustrates the Schumpeterian Bitcoin cycle. The Bitcoin K-wave is shown in dark gray. The Bitcoin Hoogler cycles are depicted in purple, and the Bitcoin kitchen cycles, which correspond closely with the halving cycles, appear in blue. Naturally, a dollar price as the unit of measure for the y-axis can only be taken as a very loose proxy for the various drivers of the components of the Schumpeterian Bitcoin cycle, especially considering the length of time a Bitcoin K-wave covers. However, it is worth examining a few aspects. Towards the end of the first Bitcoin K-wave, all the cycles should converge. The idea is simply that all manner of flows out of all kinds of stocks begin to dwindle as the fundamental drivers of innovation for the next Bitcoin K-wave begin to coalesce. A new suite of technologies have arrived for Bitcoin that will become the impetus for the second Bitcoin K-wave. Bitcoin is retained in inventories alone and sales become rare. Bringing inventory to sales to all-time highs. Capital investments dry up since the installed capacity represents increasingly untenable market propositions, driving the installed capacity to capital investments ratio to all-time highs. Flows of Bitcoin through mining, for obvious reasons, and from inventories peter out to extremely low levels, resulting in a stratospheric stock-to-flow asterisk ratio all ratios will remain relevant in the second Bitcoin K-wave, albeit at an entirely different order of magnitude. What lies ahead is anyone's guess. Just like the Condratif waves since the Industrial Revolution, we should expect truly transformational innovations affecting economies and societies globally in each of the Bitcoin Condratif waves. Perhaps, Bitcoin as the undisputed global reserve at the close of the first K-wave. Then Bitcoin as the basis for a global digital infrastructure in the second K-wave. And it's hardly beyond the realms of possibility that Bitcoin emerges as the basis for interplanetary transactions in the third. Alright, and that closes out Pratik Gora, And Andy Edstrom's piece on the Schumpeterian Bitcoin cycle. Let's hit our sponsor really fast, and I want to do a quick guy's take on this piece. The Fold Card. So, guys, I just bought a brand new set of headphones from Amazon. I'm actually wearing them right now. This is the third pair in my search because apparently I am really picky about headphones, especially since I have to wear them like six to eight hours a day. Essentially, if there is ever a way that I can use a a gift card on the Fold app or obviously the Fold debit card to purchase a thing, that's what I do. I actually got 7% back on these bad boys thanks to Fold. So I have the premium debit card, and I've basically been using it as my main bank account, but it gives me a 5% discount off of the Amazon gift cards, or 5% back, excuse me, for a certain amount each month, and then it's like a normal 1.5%. But Amazon literally has not seen, it is not charged to a card for almost a full year, basically. But then afterward, I still get my spin, my purchase spin. I got an extra 2% on this purchase wheel. So I got 30,000 sats back on this one purchase. And this is just the beginning. You can even have a chance of getting up to 100% back with the premium fold card. So I'm slowly migrating everything that I do to this as my quote-unquote bank account. So I can stack like a freaking machine. And you can actually stack your first 5,000 sats just by signing up. My link at guyswan.com slash fold will get you that. These guys are on point and there's so much cool stuff on the horizon. So check them out again at guyswan.com slash fold. So I've always kind of had this fascination with the idea that everything runs in kind of cycles or waves um and I think it's kind of inherent to what we know about just in general, just what we know about the universe. You know, everything, everything, matter, even itself, is a wave. And to like when you get down to it, almost everything is just empty space. That's one of the most fascinating things to me when kind of digging into depths of like when we're talking about the origins of the universe and of matter and energy and all of these things even when you go down to the smallest parts of the quarks and the things in an atom what you end up finding is nothing but empty space and then some very dense energy wave it's almost as if matter really is a sort of illusion the the illusion of solidity Because once you start looking into what this thing actually is, like this microphone in front of me or the desk in front of me, these things are actually all just like 99.99% empty space. And this true of the universe, it's true of everything, the smaller you go or the larger you go, that's essentially, there's this illusion that there's this big thing that you're looking at, but it's all just empty space. And the nature of the universe is cycles and waves every single thing has a rhythm to it. And when you take that all the way to human nature, when you take it to the abstraction of human consciousness and emotions and see humans as a social species, you know, the things, the, the innovation, the uh, the sharing of ideas, the spreading of culture, these things are not, to- we kind of had this, vague disconnect as if these things are separate from the universe because oh we artificially create them they're human they're uh, derivatives of humanity but they're no different it it almost is impractical to think that of every single thing that we see in the universe happens in waves and cycles it would almost be stupid to think that that wouldn't unfold in the same way that we would not see these cycles and how we interact, and just how information and ideas spread, it would almost necessitate that. What we know about how information spreads, how we change the way that we think, the delays in it, and how we affect, how other people around us affect how we think about things. You look at mirror neurons and just the entire concept of how information spreads and what we accept and what we reject it almost necessitates that all of it has to happen in waves so there's something rather elegant and beautiful to the concept of bitcoin that how this thing has its heartbeat in the every 10 minutes and that even better it's based on probability it's a probabilistic wave which i think is actually kind of akin to how humanity works how culture and information spreads because it's not it's not perfect like you can perfectly predict when or how fast something will move but it's almost like you can just see that there has to be a tendency toward this direction you can see larger trends it's very the fourth turning-esque like you can extrapolate the the perspective and the views and what was tested in each cultural, in each culture and each generation as they grew up. By the way, if you have not listened to the fourth turning, um, the fourth turning vibes that uh, uh, Brandon Quitum uh, wrote a piece on it on this show. Cannot remember what number it is. I'm gonna pause and just look it up real quick. Wow. Okay, it is way earlier than I thought. It's read 455. I cannot believe it's been that many reads. We're on five. 60 here Um, but it's Bitcoin and the rhythms of history and it's very much it's it's very along these same sorts of idea uh, or the same conceptual foundation I guess you could say that innovation that perspectives and the framing kind of the world view of a generation is cyclical that it is based on the struggles and the point at which, almost really, if you want to lay this out, when they talk about these long, these fourth turning sort of cycles, it's kind of the K wave, the larger, uh, the largest of the uh, cycles, the Schumpeterian cycles that uh, Pratik and uh, uh, Edstrom talk about in this article. It's possible that at that scale, we're even looking at how generationally the the innovation and the capital inventory versus expenditure sort of thing that cycle actually lines up with even a broader trend in how we think about things and it would also make sense obviously that these things affect each other but in the context of technology specifically well first actually let me just so Joseph Schumpeter, for those of you who do not know, because um, they actually did not go into it in any great degree, it kind of assumes that you know what the Schumpeter uh, creative destruction concept is. But he really popularized this concept that creative destruction is the heart of capitalism and that to understand capitalism, what you're looking at, or to understand the economic process of destruction, creation, and innovation, that what you're looking at is an evolutionary process. That was the way that Joseph Schumpeter saw the economic process, and I 100% agree. That is how I think it only really makes sense, is that it is an evolution, evolutionary process of collective knowledge, and that essentially the major innovations, the major shifts in the economic evolution and the technological uh, evolution are when you find a new way to organize a thing that essentially requires that the old way be destroyed. So the process of creative destruction is when the internet destroys the idea of physical publication or when the ability to freely share and distribute information and ideas and media essentially at zero cost destroys the major foundations of exclusivity of information or the ownership of an idea. And then when you think about these these cycles, these Schumpeterian cycles and the different stages and eras of them, and you look at kind of the broad cycles, which I actually think we're on the back end of the first cycle of the digital age where we are kind of expiring Moore's Law and it's very much on that timeline that 30 40 years and where the 2x the 3x the 10x improvements that you get from digitizing a certain uh, market or a certain product those are basically drying up you know that's a temporary transition when none of the world is digital and we don't have a whole lot of information to work off of and you know collection is iffy and there's no there's no direct database to plug into for things when you digitize something when you finally take that next step and you you free up you know five or ten of your employees from doing a job that now you can actually have one piece of software do it for you those are huge productivity gains early on in the digital sphere and then that wave catches, and everybody is trying to digitize. Everybody is riding that wave of innovation until it begins to saturate the the economic base. All the capital uh, allocated or, or that is available to allocate towards that basically overproduces. They just everybody floods into it as fast as they possibly can because it's the cheapest and fastest way to get outsized gains of efficiency and productivity versus all of the other potential options. It is the innovation that everybody needs to get on. So it happens in this huge wave. And the more someone sees their neighbor or their competitor or whoever it is begin to adopt this wave and they see the benefits, you break through all the literacy barriers and you hire the next person who's going to get you across that that hump so that you can ride that wave of innovation and entrepreneurship or you're a part of the either you're a part of the creation or you're a part of the destruction either you ride the wave or you get smashed underneath the wave but what I find interesting when we apply this to Bitcoin is that there's an explicit capital like inventory availability that is tied to the Bitcoin supply that is tied to bit, actual Bitcoin cycles. And there are predetermined eras in this protocol that are going to change how that capital is allocated and where most of that capital comes from, which is actually really interesting. And I don't know if I'm totally on board with the, you know, I read this piece just out of curiosity. I, I, I can't say that I 100% agree that these are how the cycles are going to play out and that these are the major elements there, but it is very fascinating and it's not something that I've just, I haven't dug into it enough. I mean, literally this is the article really that I've read on the idea of trying to map these, the Schumpeterian cycle on top of the Bitcoin essentially supply schedule and inflation schedule. Uh, cycles and what's funny in the context of the the kitchen cycle the the second secondary cycle this kind of like a 10-year cycle is I actually think when we're looking at the idea of how the let's take the stock to flow for simplicity right is that at the beginning of Bitcoin's life cycle here when the amount of uh, Bitcoin being issued was an enormous percentage of the supply was, a well, you know, basically the first year it was 100% of the supply, but, you know, 50 Bitcoin per block means that the inflation rate, the amount of capital or, or the amount of newly issued Bitcoin coming into circulation was massive. So to have that cut in half to 25 is extremely, is very substantial on the flow of Bitcoin, on the amount of Bitcoin that's coming into circulation that needs to be met with new demand but after you've already issued 10 million after 10 million coins already exist and you're issuing at 25 per block and then that cuts to 12.5 that actually doesn't have as great of an effect suddenly and this is something that pratik and edstrom talk about in this article is that you start to shift away from the inflation schedule as the amount of capital or the the flow say so to speak the flow in the economy and it moves toward inventories and you have this savings versus spending cycle and this is much more akin to a normal sort of seasonal cycle that you would see in the markets or a traditional business cycle under a free market an actual interest rate economy so if the interest rate was a real price in the economy you would see a cycle much like this. You would see it get slightly overheated during a, a short wave of innovation and/or capital capital accumulation. There would be a period of savings that lowered interest rates because there was an excess amount of capital inventory available. And this would generally happen on the tail end of a high production and innovation period. So as you know going back to the idea of you know embracing the internet and embracing the digitization of everything, is that everybody's productivity and efficiency starts to skyrocket because we're taking this 2x, 3x, 10x innovation and we're implementing it. And so there's this huge wave of investment and excess production and uh, the flow of money into the economy is very high. And then when that starts to stagnate, then people get like tight. People get you know, a little bit concerned about their money because the innovation starts to wear thin and what was a 5x or a 10x improvement is now a 1.2x or a 1.5x and suddenly actually taking up those loans and using that capital for these sorts of innovations doesn't really have the payoff that it used to. Essentially, the market is already saturated with that innovation or that sort of efficiency improvement. So now you're getting very small fractions at, you know, roughly the same cost of debt. And so people start taking that excess productivity and they start you know, cutting the fat. They stop investing and they start saving. And then that's when the inventory starts to build because there's no huge innovation to latch onto again. There's no, like, like I said, there's no 5X or 10X improvement right now. So everybody's very tight about where they actually put their capital because they want to make sure they have that inventory. And that's when the inventory grows and you get the recession and then you're down in the kind of the trough of the wave. And then during that time, the pressure to innovate, the pressure to find a new way to organize things becomes far, far greater. And even more so as the capital that has been accumulated, the inventory available to take advantage of it, even grows higher. So the economic incentive, the economic pressure, the innovative pressure, all of it is now aligning towards a new innovation. And I think that's why you get so many, even periods of time where, you know, ideas spread throughout society and people on opposite sides of the world who've never talked and there's no interaction and obviously they've never directly shared ideas damn near invent the exact same thing at the exact same time. And this has happened so many times throughout history and just one seems to catch the, the marketing hype or the popularity and, you know, the idea spreads, but you'll find them all over the place even though only one became the famous or the, the iconic one, so to speak, when you're looking back through history. And then that new innovation hits, and it starts to spread to the market, and then the cycle repeats again. Suddenly, all of that excess inventory is now pushed toward it because the investment in doing so, because we have the saved capital, suddenly the cost of uh, making an investment like that is lower than it normally is with the excess inventory but then also the return from that that new innovation that new wave is you know another order of magnitude a 2x a 3x improvement but the bigger the cycle when we're looking at these three different scales of cycle and how they apply to the Bitcoin economy and Bitcoin, the innovation in particular, what sound money is in the context of this innov- uh, this innovation, innovative cycle. The bigger the cycle, the more destruction, the, the more the creative destruction, the more that innovation is about how our entire worldview and our entire concept around how to tackle a problem in the first place these are the industrial revolution this is the the internet and the the age of digitization these weren't small improvements these were improvements that were so vastly different in how to think about innovation how to think about the very tools we would use to even spread technology and get production the idea of automation i mean think about how much that how much of a breakthrough it was during the industrial revolution to have a machine that could stamp out identical parts when everything prior to it was handmade it was such a vast capacity increase or productivity and efficiency increase that essentially the old model for creating those things had to die it had to be essentially destroyed because it was with the new idea with that new innovation it was essentially a waste of resources and we've seen the same thing with the, digi- the difference between the digital age and the analog age. Is when that transition happened, the costs of the analog systems are so great in comparison that they simply have to die for the economy to become healthier. For the, the, uh, the prosperity push, the wave of prosperity to unfold, we have to stop doing that other mechanism. And it's funny to see that Bitcoin is really kind of coming into its own at the back end of what I think is the, the, the recession or the depressionary era of the digital age. That, Like I said, those 10x improvements aren't really there anymore in digitizing a thing. You know, the iPhone 13 just isn't that much better than the iPhone 12. But the difference between having the first iPhone and not having the iPhone was groundbreaking. Like it changed the very, na- it changed life and how we interacted with each other. But there's an article I read recently, actually. It's got to be in my potential read list somewhere, which is so long. I don't even know where I would, shit. What is this? If anybody remembers this article, or has read this article, I read it at, Think it was in Bitcoin magazine. I do, not, I do not know for sure. But it was talking about how the physical world, essentially, the physical manufacturing and productivity that we have in the world or innovation in the physical space uh, has been stagnant for 30 or 40 years largely because of the, the incredible productivity and, and cheap increases in production and innovation that come from digitizing things. There's this idea that you know maybe there's some really great breakthrough in a manufacturing process that can increase productivity by 20% or 30% but if you can get a 3x increase just by digitizing all of your stuff, just going fully digital in your office and the back end and your management and how to decide when to produce and when not to what you're going to that other stuff is going to be left on the table. But as we come to the end of Moore's law where those benefits just aren't there anymore those outsized benefits suddenly we have this new access to this ocean of information and ideas that we have built up and accumulated over the 30 years of moving into the fully moving into the digital era while we've let our physical innovation the our infrastructure and all of these other things stagnate and even worse is that the government has gutted them we have, you know, it's the capital strip mine. We've just ripped all of the value out of them and exported it because not only did we have the digital wave to essentially distract us from making those improvements, but we sold it out. We we gutted our manufacturing and sold it off to China and decided we were going to be a service economy, which I guess nobody seemed to care that that means we are now 100% dependent on foreign uh you know, foreign sources for whether or not we eat and we can turn on our lights or not. That's not exactly a good thing in an adversarial environment. But that if you read or, you know, thinking in the context of uh, the last episode about how the dollar reserve system has actually been a huge burden on the U.S. economy and has cost us this, when you export paper, when you export a currency, a money that you just print on a piece of paper as your dominant export, as the thing that everybody values, why are you going to work hard? Why are you going to manufacture? It creates the very structure that makes our manufacturing, our products here in the United States, more expensive. When the rest of the world needs our paper money, which is very easy and cheap to produce, it's essentially a negative subsidy on our products and on our manufacturing. And then when you have a government that's insistent on manipulating the interest rate down, you're sim- essentially doubling down on that imbalance so not only has our manufacturing and our a real production base our infrastructure stagnated but it's been bled it's essentially been gutted for the sake of just moving everything digital and pushing it overseas we've we've outsourced all the foundation of our economy but therein lies the beauty of the long cycle the the 40 year cycle that we're moving into that bitcoin recenters that bitcoin actually realigns the incentives properly and this article was specifically talking about how it puts the focus back on the infrastructure improvements that we could have it realigns the debt and capital costs in the real world by eliminating that dollar imbalance that paper currency dilemma so to speak that has gutted our economy and it suddenly it hyper shifts that focus back toward the real world not only just in the context of now we have all of this information and we need to make use of it to make our found to to find that productivity boost again to find where that innovation is best used when we can't just take out our typewriter and put it in a computer and get you know a whole lot less a whole lot more productivity anymore but also in the context of defending Bitcoin of the energy production sector. I mean, like, look at what could happen in the next five to ten years if Bitcoin becomes integral to the U.S. economy. When we're talking about energy production, when we're talking about you know buffers and uh, load balancers on the grid and the ability to take advantage of disparate and essentially currently uncapturable energy sources that are out there that Bitcoin can actually utilize because Bitcoin doesn't care where it is or what time of day it is or when the consumer needs it. It's just always there. It is a buyer of last resort. I mean, the innovation that is going to come from just just a few of the fundamental things about how Bitcoin works on top of the fact that it's going to realign economic incentive, that it's going to fix that huge debt imbalance and the dilemma of exporting paper rather than something of real value, there's going to be an absolutely massive wave of innovation. And where we've seen the, the digital era come into full force in the last 30 to 40 years, I think we're going to have a Bitcoin era in the next 30 to 40 years. And the rebalancing of economic incentives, the restructuring of actual Debt versus savings prices in the economy is going to change everything about the direction and the speed with which the economy moves. The ability to transmit value accurately and have price signals that are meaningful, that actually mean something as opposed to just what this this politician thinks we should be doing at this time but that it's an actual indicator of real economic conditions and what the economy needs to correct and to produce the most value in the most efficient manner. The prosperity that could arise from this is hard to fathom because this is a global phenomenon. This will happen in the third world, the second world, and the first world at, at, all across the board essentially at the same time it is open access to everyone it secures real price signals in the economy Not, it doesn't seek stability for the sake of stability at the cost of useful and real information on the economic condition it creates real prices and there's essentially nothing you can do about it because the supply can't be manipulated and it removes one of the biggest frictions on trade around the world today political risk and bias that conflict of interest around using a tool that is politically manipulated and cannot secure trust because it's based on a political third party solving those things will unleash so much capital and so much trade that was not possible before it's going to be fascinating to watch this unfold um and whew, it's, we are in a new cycle. We, are, we have launched ourselves into another Schumpeterian cycle. We are in a fourth turning. Things are changing at an incredible pace. You know, the truth is extremely hard to find these days because... Literally everything is compromised and corrupt, in my opinion. I tend to try and not believe literally anything until I have some insanely good reason to do so, because I think the entire mechanism of politics and economic calculation has simply been overtaken by political conflict of interest and manipulation. But the one thing that I think we can all at least agree on, a grain of truth that we can all admit in regards to the world that we live in is that everything is changing rapidly and when I say everything I mean the foundations of how we relate to each other our political systems the the viewpoints about what is right and what is wrong in the world all of this stuff is in flux right now the the consensus around the state of the world is falling apart And that is why I think Bitcoin will be such a critical totem to build a new foundation from. It is a tiny thread of reliable consensus in a global hurricane of disunity. The ability to find common ground on something of value that is not a derivative of some political agreement or law. Think everything else that we value, the land that we live on, our houses, our debts, government bonds, corporate stock. All of these things can become worthless overnight if the wrong jurisdiction writes the wrong thing on a piece of paper and the right person signs it. This makes people deathly afraid to do business and deathly afraid of each other. It removes that trusted totem to do any sort of business. It literally poisons the most basic trust necessary to, to, for all organization. The breakdown of trust is the breakdown of society. To have something of value outside of that political interest, of that apparatus, whose ownership is not compromised by anybody's signature but your own. In a world where no one is sure they own anything even more, even the permission to go to the grocery store for crying out loud, something that they own without anyone else's permission is simply revolutionary. We are moving into the Bitcoin era, and it is a wild ride. Uh, With that, um, I have rambled more than enough. Let's go ahead and close this one out. A huge thank you to the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet from Shift Crypto. Do not forget code Guy for a 5% discount. Um, And thanks to Prateek and Edstrom for putting this piece together and exploring this idea. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. I will have the link so you can drop some applause over on this one at Medium. And of course, thanks to Fold for their amazing debit card. I actually got my haircut earlier today and I let my stylist spin the wheel for me. I got 1.2% back. It's actually a really great subtle way to push Bitcoin, by the way. Um, So if you have not, if you're doing the Fold thing, let other people spin the wheel. It's a really great way to plant the little seeds of Bitcoin and be like, yeah, I'm getting sats, which are, you know, small amounts of Bitcoin on everything that I do. And it's, a, it's a really great little way to just kind of nudge them about like Bitcoin's important. Bitcoin is here. It's in everything. And, you know, be interested in it without actually, you're not like just explicitly out of nowhere, just being like, oh, interesting weather today, isn't it? You know, it kind of reminds me of Bitcoin. <laughs> so... um. Uh, don't forget uh, with Fold you can snag 5,000 free snats, uh, sats by signing up with my reference link. Uh, it's at guyswan.com fold. We'll redirect you straight there. Check them out. And uh, with that, I just want to close this out with don't lose sight of the mission. Don't lose sight of why we are here and what problems we are trying to solve. It is so easy to get caught up in the negativity. It is so easy to be hopeless for the future. It's, it's everywhere. You know, Going back to the idea of mirror neurons and cultural you, you know, shifts and viewpoints. It's so easy to fall into that because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. What we want to do is we want to be the push against that. We know where we are going and what we are trying to accomplish. We have a goal. We have a clear path forward. There's so much noise. There's so much hate and there's so much FUD. This is about building something better. Focus forward, not on the now. We are creating something unstoppable. We are trying to create something to replace this bullshit. We have two paths that the future can take. And we choose which one of those we contribute to. One is the social credit score panopticon that we are already witnessing. You know, it's not something that we have to imagine what it looks like. We know what it looks like, we can see it right now. But that social credit score, infinite surveillance future is not set in stone, it is not inevitable. It is a choice. We can take back our privacy. We can exit from the, manip- from the manipulation and the false prices. We can save ourselves from being victims of the money printing machine. And we can, we can get back our sovereignty in the digital age. It is our responsibility. I mean, that's, that's what my show is about, right? That's why we are here to explore, to teach, to understand what the hell this, this other path is and how we take advantage of it. What Bitcoin is. You know we have a really short time and the grand picture of things we have a really short time on this world which path are you going to take which one will you devote your time your energy your thoughts and skills toward we all have that choice i choose bitcoin all right Thank you guys so much for listening. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production.